we want to really focus on some things related to joy, the shepherd's joy. And um, a survey was done of all of the, uh, you know, looking at the key people in the account of Advent, and they asked everybody, who do you think uh, you identify with the most? So how many of you think it was Mary? How many of you think it was Joseph? Okay, the shepherds? The wise men? Uh, anyone for Herod? <laughs> okay. All right. Well, not a surprise. The shepherds came out on top by far. They were the most uh, identified with group uh, in the whole story of the whole account of Christmas. Uh, over the years, I've been in quite a few Christmas productions at, at churches I've been part of, and it seemed like the shepherds always had this really great part, right? They all, always get to sit there the whole time, and they don't have to sing. They're just sitting around the campfire, and maybe one or two of them have a line, but mostly they're just enjoying the show. And I was always a little bit jealous of them because I was in uh, the choir having to sing every song and, you know. So anyway, um, a little bit jealous of the shepherds there. Most of us know the Christmas story. We're pretty familiar with it. In fact, so familiar with it that it's, it's um, almost become part fable and part legend in our minds. And that means that the version in our minds that we have of the Christmas story might not be totally accurate. Because a lot of it has been influenced by culture, and a lot of it's been influenced by tradition. And so we, we tend to think of that story on kind of that superficial level that we've kind of gotten used to. The Christmas hymns that we sang this morning help us remember that the baby born in Bethlehem is Jesus Christ our Lord, the Son of God who brings us great joy. And Jesus also brings joy today in the world that's increasingly without hope or joy. So that's why as we look at this week three in our series of Advent, the theme is about joy. Uh, so question, we're going to talk about joy. I guess we better talk about what is joy. So what is joy? What do you think joy is? Joy is the ability we have to keep our eyes on Jesus even and not our surroundings. Okay. Anything else? Well, the joy is knowing that, that God loved us so much that he would send his son down to, for us, lowly people. Joy is knowing that God loves us even though we're lowly people. Joy in our hearts. Yep. It's a feeling that only comes from within. It's not a feeling that comes from within, not external, bubbles up from within. Anyone else have a thought on it? Happiness? Ha yes, uh, related to happiness. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's not just a feeling. <laughs> the song says it's indescribable. Yeah. <laughs> it's uncontainable, right? Okay. Yeah, well, I, I tell you what, if you look at TV, there's a commercial on right now that tells us at the close that joy is a state of drive. So, I mean, driving your car. So, uh, you know, the, the world has maybe a different view of joy than we do, 
uh, and more and more, especially over the last two years, the times are sapping people of real joy. Uh, you can even Google online about joy and you see that it's a really important thing about our mental health. And, uh, that, but it's, it's hard to find like how to have it online. I'm just going to tell you because I looked to see what they said. Uh, and um, there's a lot of counselors who want to help you get your joy back, but there's not a whole lot of articles on how to do it. So today we're going to see what it is in the account of the shepherds who were told that they were being given by the angels great news of great joy, good news of great joy. And so just like the shepherds were able to receive that, today we're going to talk about how can we receive that as well. The shepherds on that evening received the news of their Savior, Jesus Christ. That gift is also available to us too. And uh, we too can sing uh, joy to the world just like the angels saying joy to the world. So let's read in our, our Bibles uh, the story, the account of this occurrence. So let's go to Luke 2 in the New Testament, starting at verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to to those on whom his favor rests. When the angel had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Okay, we'll stop there in this account. So have you ever wondered why the angels appeared to the shepherds at night right there on the edge of Bethlehem? Uh, when a family would have a baby in uh, Bible times, they would hire a herald to run through the streets and proclaim the good news and announce the birth of the child. And that's what God the Father is doing here. He's sending angels to announce the birth of his son. But question for you, why did God have the angels proclaim the news to the shepherds? He knew the shepherds would be excited about it and spread the word. Yeah. I think the shepherds, the shepherds they were from various, from various places, so that's, that's a great way to kind of, you know, to share the word because they, they all live in different parts, so the news will go fast. So shepherds live in different parts of the city than mm -hmm. others, and... 
uh, so the news would spread fast. Yeah. The shepherds here in this story, a, a lot of times, you know, there's, there's things we think are true about the Christmas story just because we've always heard it and seen it that way. But these were not just regular shepherds here, okay, as we come to think of them. That makes a good story, these poor lowly shepherds. Makes a really great story, i got to tell you, that God would give the news first to the least of us. And yes, Jesus does care for those who are downcast and hurting along with everybody else. But the true account here is even better, okay? The shepherds we read about in Luke were actually fulfilling temple duties. And the only ones who could perform temple duties were priests. And the Mishnah tells us about this. The Mishnah is that group of documents that recorded oral traditions. And the oral traditions governed the Jewish people during the time of the Pharisees. So in this time, the, the Mishnah is in existence, and, and they're using that. Uh, one of the regulations that's in the Mishnah expressly forbids the keeping of flocks throughout the land of Israel except in the wilderness. And the only flocks kept otherwise would be those used for temple services, so the flocks that the priests looked over. And these shepherds were right in, like, in the city limits of Bethlehem. They're right on the edge of Bethlehem. They're not out in the wilderness where regular sheep and shepherds would be. So these guys must have been the shepherd priests, the priests who did the job of shepherding the flocks. And so why would these priests perform this menial duty of shepherding this particular flock? Why do you think? They were preparing the, the flock for sacrifice, for the feasts. Yeah, exactly. These were the sheep that they are watching over are the ones intended for the temple sacrifices. And it was also for the Passover and the other feasts. Anytime uh, a sacrifice of a lamb was required, these are the sheep that would have been, uh, that the flock they would have gone to to find those sheep. It was the priest's job to make sure the lambs were without blemish, and unharmed before being used for sacrifice. And one of the prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus was that he would be born in the town of Bethlehem. And it tells us in Micah all about that. We'll get to that in just a minute. And this is indeed the place where Jesus was born because in Matthew 2.1 it says that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Luke tells us in Luke 1 uh, verses 1 to 3, he says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. So he's telling you, Luke is telling you why he wrote the book of Luke. He's saying it's, it's to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled. Just as they were handed down to us by those from uh, the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. And it appears in this particular part of the book of Luke that his main source was probably Mary herself. Um, it, because it tells us that Mary took all this thing that had happened and pondered them in her, and treasured them in her heart. And that's something she probably told Luke. Uh, we're getting a first-hand account here in the book of Luke. So back to our question of why the shepherds got the announcement. Well, shouldn't the news be told? Wouldn't you think God would want the highest authorities to know about it? 
Like Bethlehem's only five and a half miles from Jerusalem. That's not that far, even if you're going to walk it. Uh, why not tell the Roman governor or King Herod or the high priest at the temple? Why wouldn't you tell somebody a bigger deal? Well, to understand this account as it actually was, we need to go back to the Old Testament and see the importance of Bethlehem from the time of Jacob, who Jacob is the grandson of Abraham. So in Genesis 35, verses 16 to 21, let's just read that real quickly to give us some perspective here. Uh, verse 16, Then they moved on from Bethel. While they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel began to give birth and had great difficulty. And as she was having great difficulty in childbirth, the midwife said to her, Don't despair, for you're having another son. As she breathed her last, for she was dying, she named her son Ben-Oni, but his father named him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Over her tomb, Jacob set up a pillar, and to this day that pillar marks Rachel's tomb. Israel moved on again and pitched his tent beyond Migdal Eder. Okay, so we'll stop right there. Uh, Jacob loved his wife, Rachel. Remember the story of Jacob and Rachel? He went to marry her, and the father gave him her older sister first in marriage. So Jacob had two wives, but he continued to really love Rachel. And so when she was in childbirth with their son, Benjamin, she died, and she was laid to rest in Bethlehem where they were. And there's a beautiful shrine that was built there that actually still, that's still there today, actually. And um, Ephrath means fruitful place, fruitful place, which seems a little ironic for a name where there is a burial shrine. But this was not just the place of Rachel's death. This was actually the beginning of new life as well because Benjamin was born there. The prophet Micah, who lived a few generations after King David, prophesied that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And he says in Micah 5.2, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come one for me who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. He's talking about the Messiah here. For Jacob, Bethlehem became, became this place of mourning, this place of loss. So he went beyond the burial place, it tells us in verse 21, and he uh, set up his tents near Migdal Eder. Migdal Eder means tower of the flock or watchtower. And it was only, it was just on the outskirts of Bethlehem. It was a tower and, and there's a kind of an elevation there in the land and the tower is set up there where the shepherds would go and they'd watch over their sheep and they'd see them grazing in the valley below. And it was a good vantage point perfect for watching over the sheep and keeping an eye on what might be coming uh, down the road from Jerusalem. They could keep an eye on things and, and protect the flocks. Several generations later, Migdal Eder was the place where they raised unblemished and unspotted sheep used for temple sacrifices. And looking at the Old Testament, 11 generations after Jacob is King David. King David is born in the town of Bethlehem, not far from the place where Jacob pitched his tents to mourn. And David would one day be king of Israel. 
But as a young man, it tells us that he's a shepherd. So if he's working in these flocks here on the edge of Bethlehem, he was one of those priestly shepherds. It was a sacred duty to watch over these sacrificial sheep. And the priestly shepherd was not just any shepherd, but it was someone who knew the scriptures. While David watched over the sheep, he tells us in the Psalms that he meditated on the word of God. For example, Psalm 1-2, he talks about whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on it day and night. That would have been the source of his strength, the source of his guidance to meditate day and night during the watches, watching over the sheep. And he references the watches of the night in Psalm 63, 6. On my bed I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. This flock of sheep at Migdal Eder by Bethlehem was used for those daily sacrifices. One sheep in the morning, one sheep at night. Unblemished sheep. And also for the Passover and other feasts. These lambs would have come that they used for all of that from the flock at Migdal Eder. 900 years later, we're reading of the account in Luke 2. And verse 8 tells us that shepherds were living out in the fields nearby, fields nearby Bethlehem, by Megdal Eder. And Megdal Eder of the Tower of the Flock was constructed as a place for watching over the sheep, like we said. And in that tower on the ground floor, there's a room designated for the delivery and protection of these special little lambs when they're born. The lambs there were inspected, and if they were unblemished, nothing was wrong with them. They would take strips of cloth and wrap their legs and their bodies when they were newborn to protect them and keep them unblemished. And in this room was a manger for the sheep, and it was kept, that whole room and that manger were all kept ceremonially clean. Luke 2.7 tells us that Mary also wrapped Jesus in cloths at the time of his birth. I mean, cloth would have been right there, right? <laughs> Why not use it to wrap him, to keep the baby warm and keep him protected? A statement in the Mishnah says that the Messiah would be revealed from the Migdalator. So when the word came to these shepherds who are out there right by this tower about a babe in a manger, they knew just where to look. They knew about the scripture. They knew about the uh, promises. They knew to find the Messiah in the manger at the watchtower in Bethlehem. It's a priest. It was one of the priest's job to stay in that Megdalator uh, tower all night. With the tower being so tall, the shepherd priest was to do a couple of things. One was to watch over the flock by night, just like we sing about, right? And while the others are out there in the ground watching over the flocks as well. And when they heard the news about Christ, the promised Messiah being born, it's no wonder they ran off in haste. Uh, they hurried off to see the babe that was being spoken about. And the shepherds found the baby right there in that lower room, lying in the manger. And they understood what that sign meant, that this baby was the Messiah. They knew of the prophecy of Micah about Bethlehem and Megdal Eder. In Micah 4.8 it says, As for you, watchtower of the flock. It's been translated out for us there. You look back at the original Hebrew. It says, As for you, Megdal Eder. 
uh, stronghold of daughter Zion, the former dominion will be restored to you. He's saying that the former things of God that he has for this land will be restored. The Messiah, Jesus Christ, was born in the same place as all of those unspotted lambs designed for sacrifice were born. He really was the Lamb of God. John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, knew of the prophecies of the Messiah too. And that is why John says in John 1, 29, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He called that out as he saw Jesus this lamb, Jesus Christ, who was born at Migdal Eder, the tower of the flock, became the sacrificial lamb for Israel and for the world. Our theme today is joy. And if you Google how to have joy, there aren't a lot of articles to be found, as I told you. So how do we have the kind of joy the angel told the shepherds about? The angel told the shepherds that he was bringing good news of great joy for all people, which includes us. So how can we have that joy too? So looking at the shepherds, we can see three things that will help us to have joy too. The first thing is to be in awe of God's good news to you. The shepherds were awed by that announcement by the angels. <laughs> it's a little more than awe maybe, but it was awe. <laughs> By the glory, because the glory of the Lord shone around them and the message the angels spoke to them was amazing. They were in awe of what was going on and they were certainly in awe when they came and found the baby in the manger with Mary and Joseph. The glory of the Lord, the powerful message of Jesus' birth. One of the articles I actually did find online was, uh, it, and it's not, uh, it, it's just a secular article, Michelle Shiota, an Arizona state psychologist, says awe is difficult to define, but I think what we are dealing with is a change that happens in our minds and in our bodies and in our feelings when we encounter something so extraordinary we can't explain it. The feeling of awe also widens your perspective, she said, which Shiota desperately needed after spending so much time in front of a, her computer during the pandemic. See, being in awe is not only like how we worship God and how we see him. Being in awe is actually something that he knows helps us, benefits us. It's healing for us, for our souls, for our emotions. For us today, we need to have an awe of God. The psalmist calls this the fear of the Lord. It's amazing that the God who created the universe would send his son to earth to live a sinless, blemishless life, to die for our sins and then be resurrected in power. And part of that awe is to receive the good news, to receive that good news about Jesus Christ, that we can have a personal relationship with God, that Jesus forgives our sins, and that when we stand before God, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Someday we will do that. When we stand there, we are clothed in his righteousness. So firstly, to have joy, be in awe of God's good news to you. And then secondly, be attentive to what God has called you to do. Now the shepherds there, when those angels came, believe me, they were paying attention. <laughs> and and they went immediately and did what God called them to do. 
They ran to see the baby Jesus lying in a manger. And we need to also be attentive to hear what God is uh, telling us to do. It says in verse 15, the shepherd said one to another, basically it translated, let's go. <laughs> let's go. Let's go see this. They had listened to what God told them and they did it. They didn't have any big discussion about whether or not they ought to go. And they didn't have any big discussion about like, should they go now or should they wait and go later? Like, should they pray about it first? No, they just ran there right away. And when we do what God calls us to do, there is joy in that. It results in joy to us even when we don't have a perfect day. You know, we can still have God's joy within us. Often when uh, what we think is a problem is actually a challenge and an invitation for us to build that better way of thinking, to see things through God's eyes. James 1, 2 to 4 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. See, when we focus on those things we have from God, when we consider that all joy, what this is telling us here is that our minds are renewed. We fill, when we fill our minds with the things God says about us, when we fill our minds with his word, when we believe what God says about us, we can have that joy from him. Doing the things that God puts before you will bring you joy because you've been created to do those things. See, it doesn't just honor Jesus Christ for us to become what he created us to be. Uh, to do the things he set before us, it also brings us joy because we're operating in the way God designed us to operate. So be attentive. Listen to God's voice to you. When you read your Bible, when you're praying, in your dreams and visions that God gives you, pay attention to what he is telling you and then do it. The third thing for joy that we see in the shepherds is to practice gratitude. These shepherds didn't just go and think, man, that's pretty awesome, isn't that? Yeah, we, that was great, yep. It wasn't just about a show of going and seeing this cool thing. It was an experience that they were grateful to God about. It, to have seen the Messiah, they were grateful to God for providing the Lamb of God, for providing salvation. It tells us in verse 20, that when they returned to the flocks, that they were glorifying and praising God. That's gratitude. It says they were thankful for all the things that they had seen and heard. Gratitude is one of those things that God asks us to do, to have gratitude, to have thanksgiving. And then he gives us a promise of what happens when we are thankful. In Philippians 4, 6, and 7, it says not to be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, with being grateful, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So when we come before him, when we bring our request to him, when we have the thanksgiving, the gratitude, the end result is that that protects our hearts and our minds. Gratitude helps protect your heart and your mind. It's part of that process. When we're thankful, we experience positive emotions, and that helps us experience joy. Dr. Shriram 
Shama Sunder, a physician at the University of California, San Francisco, said that during the past couple of years, he started to keep a gratitude journal. Each day he would jot down some things around him for which he was grateful. So not necessarily spending a whole lot of time racking my mind, he says, but just everyday occurrences that were powerful or meaningful or just simple and beautiful. By intentionally cultivating gratitude for even a short period each day, Samasunder found it easier to evoke positive feelings throughout the day. The act of naming the gratitude, he says, carried into the next day and the next, where I became more aware of things in my life that I should cherish in the moment or I need to cherish. That's what we need to be doing each day to be looking to God and looking for things to thank him for. Don't just blindly go through the day and just let things occur and happen. But as we follow him, that we are thankful to him. And, and from what this man says, like for how beautiful the sunset is maybe, or how beautiful the snowflakes are this time of year. You know, I mean, I know it's a lot to be grateful for the snow, but you know, be grateful for what God gives us. We all need to have that heart to see those things too that God is doing in our lives. The things that occur each day as he speaks to us and, and the encounters we have with other people, to be grateful for that. When you look at the meaning of the word joy in the Greek in Luke 2, um, it can be translated the awareness of God's grace and favor. The awareness of God's grace and favor. And then have gratitude for that. This is not something that's dependent upon circumstances, as we said at the beginning, but on the Lord. And he never changes. So if that's the case, then joy is available to us anytime. We just need to come to him and know he will provide. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. So in other words, if you need joy in your life, if you need that, just you just need to come before the throne of God and find his mercy and ask him for the joy you need. John 15, 11 says, I've told you this. This is Jesus speaking to the disciples and to us, obviously, too. So that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Jesus intends for us to live in that joy. Please stand as we close. I just ask you to bow your heads as we close. Have you lost the ability to be in awe of what God's doing in your life and in the lives of others? Do you need to take the time to look for where God is working? Maybe you aren't listening to what God is calling you to do. Maybe you've just gotten so busy you kind of don't do that anymore. We need to allow God to renew our minds, to fill our minds with the word of God. So question here, if you're having difficult, a difficult time finding joy, look for things each day to be grateful for, to receive all God has for you. And how might God be calling you to more deeply experience his joy this Advent season? If you want God to fill you with his joy, and if you want to be more purposeful about seeing those things that God's doing in your life and following him, just raise your hand.
Thank you. If you want God to renew your mind so you can experience his joy in a deeper way, just raise your hand. Thank you. Lord God, we just thank you for this example of the shepherds who experienced that joy of finding Jesus, the babe in the manger. Lord, we thank you for the joy that we have today too of having Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Father, I pray that we would just surrender all of us to you to follow Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Lord, I pray that you would help us to have the joy that may be lacking in our lives. Lord, we maybe are having a difficult time finding joy, and in this season, that's pretty, pretty hard. So, Father, I pray that we would look each day for what to be grateful for so we can receive all you have for us. Lord God, I pray that we would deeply experience your joy. It's a little like happiness, but it's really not. We can be surrounded by a lot of heavy things, but we can still have that joy to get through. James told us that, yeah, consider it joy, even when you're going through really rough times. But we can still have your joy to get us through, your strength, your power. Father, I pray that you would help us to be purposeful about doing what you've called us to, following you. We just ask, Lord, that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would renew our minds. Give us the strength and the perspective we need each day. Holy Spirit, fill us up from the top of our head to the soles of our feet. Help us to follow you, Lord Jesus. Lord, I pray for an outpouring of your joy in this time of Christmas this year. For the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. And he will make her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her. Thanksgiving and the voice of song. Amen. <clears throat>